Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Theatrical Mustang Podcast. I'm your host, Woodzik, and my pronouns are they, them, and theirs. This is episode 144 with Jill Sobule. Jill spoke to me from the NYC run of her autobiographical show, Fox 7th Grade. In it, she chronicles her rise to pop music stardom with her song, I Kissed a Girl. Part coming out party for Jill, part cheeky dare to music industry executives, the song launched into the Billboard Top 20 and became a bona fide hit. What happened after exposed the misogyny and homophobia of the recording industry and made Jill kill the song that made her famous from her set lists. Ultimately, it took Jill decades to play I Kissed a Girl again. The show speaks to what finally made her embrace the song again. The Theatrical Mustang Podcast features interviews with unbridled talent and cultural trailblazers across the country. This episode is distributed by American Theatre Magazine. Episodes 1 through 138 are archived at theatricalmustang.podbean.com. And now, please enjoy episode 144 with Jill Sobule. Well, I am so stoked to welcome to the podcast, Jill Sobiel. Welcome, Jill. I'm happy to be here and, and, and on the right time. Yes, absolutely. So tell me about this autobiographical show that you've created. You're starring in Fuck 7th Grade. I mean, that was the hardest year of my schooling, for sure. Um, where did the show come from? How is it all coming together? Well, I started, you know, I'd been writing for musicals, but not being in it. And uh, I was talking with my agent at one point. They said, you should come up with a show that's kind of similar to what you do. When I play live, I tell stories. And then I thought about, for some reason, I have so many songs that deal with that period of my life. It's like, mm. I, it, it's, oh, let me turn that off. I don't get, you'd never get over it. I mean, we're still fucked from seventh grade. Absolutely. So, so that's where it began with, and uh, that's where it all begins with for everyone. So, I mean, I always say at the end, I have no idea what I'm talking about, but the Freud had it wrong. It wasn't the first week or first month or year that that is our development that says who we are at seventh grade. <sighs> yeah, heavy, heavy. No, I just like, I feel the gut punch because, I mean, I grew up in Wisconsin and a more liberal part of Wisconsin, but like, we weren't able to even call it the Gay Straight Alliance. It was called Tolerance Group, right? And so like, if you're like taught you are to be tolerated, like what, (laughs) what does that say about things? But I remember like someone spreading a rumor in seventh grade that I was gay, which I mean, not untrue. But being 12 and not having... Well, it's horrible. I didn't even know what that was at 12, really. And, like, how do you defend yourself? And, yeah, it's a quite quite a hellish year, I think, consistently for a lot of people. Yeah, I, I think it's, especially for girls, that they, they mature faster. I actually found out in, in my deep scientific research <laughs> that... that for girls, seventh and eighth grade, and for boys, they have their worst years 
like a couple years later, like even the first year of high school. I think it's, you know, our brains aren't in sync with with our growing body and hormones. Or right. Something. And and it's a, a, a time, like I talk about, I open the show where I'm in sixth grade, and then I didn't give a shit about anything. I was a tough right. little girl. And then all of a sudden in seventh, seventh grade, like the confidence gap year, you, you, you start questioning yourself, you know, it peers become more important than your parents and, and gr- little girls can be just little shits. <laughs> yeah. Little, little bitches. But, um, so anyway, it, it all starts from there. It all starts from there without, without giving too much away. What could an audience member I mean, I saw the picture that you shared of the set on Twitter, which is like amazing. It looks so freaking cool. But what can someone expect coming into this experience? Boy, it's it's hard for me to know because I I think it's going to be, you think it's a concert, a little concert, but then it's a theatrical experience. It It has a lot of little twists and turns. They can expect a good time. <laughs> Laugh, you'll cry. So how, uh, can you talk to me about the development process of this piece? How long was it from incubation to getting it on a stage in front of people? Well, the first thing was um, my agents who I had uh, got me together. I think it was them. Hmm, I'm trying to remember how with Liza Berkemeyer, how we got together. It was kind of like I was speed dating with a, you know, with different book writers, and and so with Liza, we just had this great thing. She'd come over and just record me talking about a bunch of stories, and we'd somehow we'd put it together like kind of a jigsaw puzzle, and and um, I don't know. It, it still kept developing over the last. That this has been like pre-COVID. We just okay. had we did a little version of it during COVID at a drive-in at the Pittsburgh City Theater, where it was still not quite developed, but it was a really weird experience because I played in front of cars like a ste- like a weird Stephen King novel, where it's like I didn't see anybody; I would just see headlights and honks. So then we hadn't done it since in the Wild Project uh, was game to doing it. So that's how that happened. And that's how we're there now. Did that answer any question? It does. No, no. I love I love uh, talking about different ways of knowing, right? Because I think folks think about writing as you sit down in front of a computer and you knock out your pages. And not all creative minds are like that, right? Like sometimes you need to have a witness and you need to be able to... Uh, right in a more free flowing way, and then she put her kind of work into it, and some uh, other stories of some other teenagers. So, it I, I like to think of it as not self indulgent, just about me. I'm just like a character where everyone can hopefully relate to what a shitty time they had. And of course, you, I'm older than you, so I'm just gonna say. I had it worse than you. This was in the late seventies, you know. Oh, I'm there sure. There was not even a tolerance group. There was right. Not, there know. wasn't even a group. There was no group. No. 
I've heard you speak in other interviews about lack of representation when you were growing up and how you would want to play, um, you would be influenced by the Beatles. What were some of your other influences if there wasn't that, you know, representation that hopefully we have a lot more of right now? Well, I mean, there were really no, I wanted to be like a Jimi Hendrix. I wanted to be a shredder on guitar. And there were really no role models for me. I mean, later right. on there was uh, the Runaways, but there was there really wasn't much. So my role models were all men because they had to be. If you were a girl, you were the singer or the backup singer. So I didn't have any role models for that. And as far as any kind of gay or queer role models, there wasn't really any. You know, there was the 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 awful gym teacher, Miss Newby, you know, <laughs> there, there was, there was nothing. So right. you're, uh, you're kind of like on your own and making it up as you go along. And then, uh, yeah. So what was that space like between seventh grade and arguably becoming like a queer camp songwriting icon? Like what is that space between? Wow, well, that was a long, that was a big space. Right, I, right. I, was a, I'm a, I mean, I was a late bloomer even, you know, to think. Um, I mean, the funny thing was, was that, you know, music was so important to me as a kid, and I was a musician, but once I went to, to college, I thought, like, no, you got to get a real job. I, I, right. I, music was just going to be, it was just an accident that I ended up doing what I'm doing now. I mean, I, I was on my third year abroad program in Spain, and I was busking on the street with a, another American friend, and a guy happened to walk by and had a nightclub and asked me if I'd want to play his nightclub. And I think if that guy hadn't walked by, mm. you, I, so I ended up playing the club, dropping out of school, and that was the beginning. But I wonder if it was that one what I would be doing in my life. You know, right. I don't know if I would have been doing music. I don't know. I might have been selling real estate at Caldwell Banker or something <laughs> with four kids. I don't know. But um, so there's a long gap between that. But the, the interesting thing was when I, I guess there was a while I always wanted to write songs that I wished I would have had when I was a kid. Mm. And, and, uh, thus, that's, that's where, uh, I became who I am today. I don't know what that even means. No, I know. So that's, that was a motivator. How do you, you infuse a lot of really personal experiences into a lot of your songwriting. Has that always been like that from the beginning? And, and do you feel the need to guard certain parts of yourself or does it just sort of flow in naturally? Well, I think it, I, I I come from the the songwriting of the the kind of storytelling songwriters. I mean, I grew up with the influence of the the Joni Mitchells, the John Prine, yeah, and Cohen. So there's that kind of storytelling, and also there there's uh, some revealing of the self. But I think what helps me is sometimes I kind of put a little kind of humor or story on it or else use someone else's name so it doesn't seem as as earnest or, or self-indulgent or, or you, 
that that that's just how I feel more comfortable. So I mean, even take like Kiss to Girl is well. First of all, we knew. Yeah, I say this in the the play that that we had to on the surface have it be like a little funny story, you know, uh, so we could get away with the insidious gay right? agenda that we we so. Can you talk that that music video is it's wild and I love it. Can you talk? Tell tell me about Fabio and and why Fabio ended up in this music video. Well, it was a double-edged sword. I mean, when we were coming up with the uh, the concept, we thought, well, let's get the, the kind of most dunderheaded male uh, icon, you know? Right, <laughs> you know? yeah. So, so we did that. But on the other hand, it kind of hurt it for me because then the label was like, oh, let, we can take away the queerness of it and we can focus on when they would do the ads for uh, the the uh, the video and the song it would be just me and Fabio and right. and and I talk about this in, in the musical that you know I was supposed to have a, a kiss at the end and it was going to maybe be the first with another woman on MTV and at the end they decided to have me pregnant with Fabio's baby so that video I think is frigging great. But there, at the end, it also has a, you know, they they, they chickened out at the end. They Absolutely, like, they did. Dequeer it. They dequeered it. But I love the concept of it, of the kind of, you know, to me it was my kind of living my fantasy of the kind of 1950s gay pulp fiction, you know. The unhappy housewives who, you know, find each other after the Tupperware party. Like I say, yes. I love that. I love that imagery. Can you talk a little bit? I just I would love to hear you talk a bit more about creating with that oversight of a studio with those music videos. And then now, as opposed to now where you have more complete control over the narrative. What's that like? Well, I think I had complete control of the narrative not soon after that time because afterwards like say the label really didn't know what to do with me and right then there was no one there was not money to be made on me so that meant i could do whatever i wanted so <laughs> i think since then for better or worse i've just kind of uh done whatever i wanted so i i think that uh yeah, that I've, I've had the freedom since then. Through failure comes great freedom. That's well said. I just made that up. <laughs> we'll make a t-shirt or a bumper sticker. You've collaborated with some of my heroes, starting with, let's talk about Julia Sweeney. Ah, uh, she's so great. That's how did that, how did that come to be? Is the story well, about meeting in front of the, Aquarium, is that true? Yes. Well, well, we this was years ago. We both uh, did something for the TED conference, and this was before there were TED talks. It's, this was the old timey great TED, and uh, I was kind of the uh, I sang for my supper, and I'd go every year, and they had Julia that year, and she was a fan of mine, and I was a huge fan of hers, and we found out we lived like two blocks away from each other. So 
uh, we got together and I was playing a, a show in Los Angeles and I said, why don't you come and just tell a story or something? So she came and then she'd do it a couple more times. And then we decided, hey, this is fun. Let's just for goofs, uh, the Jill and Julia show. It was just an excuse for us to hang out with each other, really. So uh, it was called the Jill and Julia show. And basically it was she'd tell a story and I'd, I'd play a song that had something to do with that story. And we did it for a couple of years. And, and then Julia was like, I have talked enough about my life. I know every time I see her, well, I saw her a couple of months ago, I go, Julia, can we do the Jill and Julia show again? She goes, no, I have uh, no desire to talk about myself ever again. So, but I miss it. She's, she's the best. And it was, we had, it, like I said, it was a great excuse for us to, to hang out. I just, I have so much respect for her. Have you seen, have you had a chance to see her arc? Um, work in progress Jeez. I just for anyone who hasn't please check out the show I just I love I love someone who can play themselves in a way that's like not taking themselves too seriously but I love also the way that she comments on on her character from SNL and the fact that Weird Al is just her husband I love that so much and he, I know Weird Al. He is, oh, the, wow. he is the nicest human being in the whole world. I love him so much. So those two. Yeah, I think growing up, my first, my first four or five albums were all Weird Al, and I think there's there's something very queer about Weird Al, even though he is a straight man. <laughs> like the fact that he, you know, like to to dig into the verb too queer right instead of the identity i think he a lot of what he does in his mus musicianship is queer songs uh and that makes me happy well i think he embodies camp which is a yes game. yes yes what is what is your relationship been with i mean i associate you with especially those music videos like supermodel and i kissed a girl with camp but what is your relationship I mean, has it evolved with camp over the years? Well, I, I, I think that, you know, it was an influence growing up because I think, especially when I grew up and, 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 and it was a big influence in, you know, being gay, you know, you, you watched John Waters films, right? You know, you, you, you had that sensibility and I don't think that, you know, it takes different form, but it's still a part of you. You know, I I, I think that I mean d d definitely evolved as a, as an artist, and there's different. Maybe there's a little less of it, but it's still inside me. I don't think I I hope that camp never leaves us. I hope I hope I hope none of us ever get. I hope we never outgrow camp as artists because it just. I think those are my people, at least as an artist, those folks who are able to embrace the camp at least a bit. Yeah. I mean, I think that's not going away. Well, speaking of camp and silly things, you got a mention on The Simpsons. Tell me when, how did this come about? Well, I've known Matt Groening for a while. Like we, we 
I, there's these like conference circuits like TED and the thing called EG and I've known him for a while and and he always for years he said Jill I should your voice you know I've got to do something with you at some point and it became this running joke this was like 10 years every time I'd see him once a year twice a year and I'd go hey when am I going to be on the Simpsons but it wasn't like a it was more like you know a joke. He goes, right. yeah, I, I know, I know. So a couple of years ago, I uh, there, I got an email about being on The Simpsons, being, um, you know, and writing a song for. There was a uh, episode called uh, Lumber Jill about like a lesbian lumberjack, and so I thought that the writers came up with this concept, and then Matt thought, oh. I can get Jill to do this. <laughs> so it was great. Went there, uh, wrote the song and recorded it. He was there when we recorded it. And it was great because when we were recording it, we were thinking of this whole kind of production. And he was like, no, let's just, it's campfire. Let's just have Jill on the guitar. Let's just do that. And and so, so, yeah, that's one of the highlights of my life that I got to that Lisa Simpson got to say my name. I can die now. Because <laughs> Lisa Simpson knows who you are. I yeah. love it. Let's talk about the intersections and sort of the evolution from singer-songwriter to uh, leading into theater a bit more. I read that you played Miss Hanukkah in the fifth grade. Well, the first time, my resume... For I mean I've been I've been written writing for the theater I've been doing that for the last music the last few years, but as far as the thespian career, right? Well, the first time I was on stage, I I actually someone asked me to be in their play at the Geffen Theater this this uh, this last summer, and it was the first time I was on stage since other than you know playing music right right since fifth grade yes it was terrifying and this is this is really new for you oh completely new yeah but i wasn't you know i wasn't playing myself i was playing i meant stereotype what do you think that they would have me play a rabbi's wife who gets murdered of course It's called a wicked soul of Cherry Hill, and it was, it was great. Uh, and at the Geffen, it was my first uh, foray into this world. And you know, I was telling all my you know theater friends, "Yes, I'm moving on from the music world because theater is so lucrative." They are <laughs> sarcasm, sarcasm, big time. But just, just talk about I, one. I love that casting for you, but what was I mean? What was it like? Because you get to sort of, you're not the one driving the bus, right? It was kind of awesome. At the same time, it was terrifying because having to memorize stuff, that's not in my forte. I mean, I don't even memorize my own lyrics. I think what was helpful was that I had a wig and I looked just like my mother in the 90s. Like like a, you know... Jewish woman from the nineties, and so I just, I just channeled my mother. I knew how to do that. Right. I was my mother that entire time, and it was funny. My my, you know, 
cousins who came to the show and they were like, that is too weird. <laughs> that is just, you look just like your mother. But That's it was wild. a really fun experience. Uh, I never had anything like this. And, and even though I'm playing myself in this, I still have to, it's a theatrical presentation as opposed to me riffing. It's it's lines that I've had to memorize, and that is terrifying. You know, I've had forever in my life, I've always had that recurring dream that so many people have of somehow I'm on a stage, I'm not an actress, and I'm supposed to be knowing the lines, and I realized I didn't. You know, it's like I didn't study for the test. I didn't right. know the lines. Well, that's what my real life became. You know, <laughs> that that was the fear. But I did it, and I'm doing it now. Yeah, y'all run through the 5th or 6th of November? I think they've, um, because we all had COVID. Right. It was really tough. We had to rehearse on Zoom, and music is not easy to do. And and so they extended it the 8th. That's awesome. And where's the best place for folks to get information and tickets for the show? Shoot. I'm the la- uh go to the Wild Project. I'm going to look it up right now. Yeah, we'll make sure that we put it in the episode description. Wild Project, yes. The Wild it's in the East Village and it's a great little theater and the set is incredible. The band is incredible. We love it. We love it. I wish I were in New York right now. Um, Where are you? I'm in northern Wisconsin. Ah. Almost all the way up to the UP. UP is about an hour is away. Is that near the Dells? Uh, about three hours north of the Dells. You know, Wisconsin a bit. I love the de- I, I like being on the tourist uh, duck. The uh, ducks? Course. Yeah. It's wild. I ask actors this a lot of the time. Do you have a bucket list now that you've had a bit of a taste of being on stage and not uh, not singing? Are there roles that you would want to play, either in musicals or straight plays? Oh, God, I haven't even thought about that. Um, Like, to me, the obvious one would be playing adult Allison in Fun Home. Like, that would be pretty rad. That could be rad. I could be... uh, No, I'd do something that was just completely out. Like uh, maybe yeah. I'll maybe I'll continue the Jewish thing and be in Fiddler on the Roof. You know, I don't know. I'll just. It seems like I've got two things I do. You know, so far, so far. But um, no, I mean I've got another idea for another performance thing. I'd like to do another kind of play. So I don't know, but that's a good thing. I'm gonna start putting that in my head, that bucket list, because it's so new that I haven't even thought about that. Right. All I, I know is I'm going to be uh, doing uh, 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 an adult female buddy movie with uh, Isabel Huppert. That's that's what I want to do. I love that. Okay, so that that's that's a bucket list. Okay, okay. Can you talk me through some of the for folks who may not know what are some of the you said that you've written you've been writing for musicals over the past few years. Uh, what are some of the shows that you've written for? I don't think any, uh, well, there was one originally called Prozac and the Platypus, Times Square. I'm working right now on an adept. I did uh, music for the original Broadway 
show, 70s of Yentl, a uh, production of it. And uh, right now working on an, a kind of queer YA adaptation of A Scarlet Letter. So I'm still... Oh, my gosh. But everything's kind of taken a break for right. uh, for seventh grade right now. For this show. Yeah. What else is on the horizon other than the... Well, I'm like, I got... I'm like, write, I'm like checking my... Writing on my, okay, queer YA uh, Scarlet Letters... <laughs> I, I want to, well, I've, I've got to put out another record, so I've got to do that soon. And so the summer I did the play, then I went on tour opening up for a band, 80s band called The Fix, and I'm doing this. And then on my horizon, I want to do, I just want to chill for a month, maybe write, go somewhere to write. But, but, uh, yeah, I think after this, diva experience i'm going to need my vacation time it's important it's important right i don't know if you've uh seen some of the drama that's been around um my friend sarah porkalab is in 1776 and she wrote oh. she was interviewed for vulture and there's this quote that people keep um and it's something that adina menzel said something very similar but the idea of you can't you can't give a hundred percent of yourself a hundred percent of the time, especially in stage work. Like that's just not sustainable. And, and, and people having a really adverse response to the quote of Sarah's, like I give 75% of myself on stage. I mean, for folks who haven't read the article, I encourage you to read it. Cause I'm just paraphrasing her right now. I give, you know, I give 75% of myself for most of the show. And then during my solo, I give 90% of myself and like, but I know that that's exceptional, and I know that that fits into what the show needs. People didn't like it. People didn't. People didn't like it because what? they thought that she was being too critical of the production and this idea of oh, you should be so lucky to be on Broadway. You should be so lucky. You should be so lucky. You should be grateful to be on Broadway. And it's not that she's not grateful, but she just she speaks truth to power a lot of the time and. The idea of like uh, institutions will not give you the tools to dismantle them, right? <laughs> but I love that you're speaking about self care and um, you know regenerative practices because that's important, especially I think even more so when you're sharing personal experiences on stage because I feel that that probably drains a bit of a different well, right? Well, I I think you know uh, so far it's been. Re- well, I think what was really hard was that we all got COVID, and then even after, you know, we didn't have time to really recover. We went straight into, you know, right. we're negative. We went straight into uh, rehearsal, and everyone, uh, you know, so I think everyone's really, you know, we're just starting to feel good now. So that that that's a good thing, but you know. This is so new for me, so ask me in a couple weeks. Okay. But it's, you know, that's the thing. Even if you're feeling shitty, to me, when I've done performances, uh, you know, my music things, when you step on stage, sometimes that transforms. Yeah. You're doing your thing, and and it's great. And, um and all that. But I think now I'm at a place, you know, the, in the previews, I've just been worried about like, 
what's my next line? What's my next line? What am I doing? And now I'm just starting to feel comfortable. So I think it's starting to have, not that I didn't have fun, but feeling more relaxed into it. Well, I mean, absolutely. Being in theatrical shows is such a, when I direct, I tell, especially younger actors, this idea of like, you have to have two consciousness, consciousnesses, right? Like there's the, you are a human doing this thing. You're making sure that you have your lines and you hit your light. And then there's the, if you're doing it right, the transformational aspect of you completely like getting away from yourself and creating a brand new thing. And yeah, it's, it's challenging and um, kudos to you. Cause there's nothing I hate more than being myself <laughs> on stage. You know, I, I like to have my lines. I like to have that armor against the audience. Well, the one thing that I'm letting myself have a break is that if I mess up, which I will do every night, is that I can't, it's me. So I can say, hey, can I start over again? Can I do this? Oh, shit, I messed that up, you know? And I feel okay with that. Whereas I know someone, you know, if I was, when I was playing the rabbi's wife, that's someone's, you know, I can't, I would do that. But with this one, I feel a little bit of a safety net. Yeah, for sure. Has this it, has this inspired you to, like, is there going to be a sequel or a prequel for Fuck 7th Grade? Do you want to g- explore this sort of yeah, uh, semi-autobiographical I've got, I've got an idea for, for the next one, for sure. Yeah, how, how are, are we in high school or are we even further down the road in the next one? Uh, we're further down the road. But it's not as music-oriented. Yeah, that's awesome. Next up, I want to ask about... We talked about sort of lack of representation as you were coming up. Uh, what LGBTQ artists excite you right now? Like, who's who's on your playlist? Well, the thing is, is that it's not like it's so segregated anymore. Like it was, you, True. you know, True. I mean, you pick an artist that you'll like and you're like, oh, they're, they're, they're queer or they're not queer. They could be queer. So I think that that kind of, I mean, you always still like the pioneers, the people who, who, I mean, you could say someone like a Frank Ocean or that the, they came that, that, I still like think there's something wonderful about the, the brave ones, the f- ones that kind right. of the first to come out, you know. But now there's so many great artists that are queer that it, it's you know you can't point it out in a way, which is a great thing. It is a beautiful thing, yeah, absolutely, absolutely. So this new album, what's your songwriting process like? You're you're looking at a new album. How much of it is written right now? How much is left to go? Do you have a writing routine that you do every day? Or is it sort of as the spirit strikes you? Well, I'm not one of those that, those people that write every day. You know, I'm not like that. I can't do that. I'm not disciplined. I'm a slacker. I'm lazy. I can't do that stuff. And I always like to say, because, you know, you got to live life. And if you're sitting there writing, you can't, but that's bullshit too. It's just because I'm lazy. But that's my process. But my idea is to do a bunch of different EPs because I have such kind of odd, eclectic taste. Yeah. I'd like to do a thing of, 
a soundtrack of Fuck 7th Grade. Right now I'm doing a, um, uh, I've recorded some songs that were some back catalog, back catalog, not Cadillac songs. And, um, but it's in a kind of jazz trio kind of, uh, it's just with that, uh, timbre and that 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 sound and and i'm not playing guitar and it, it's very uh, um more serious and then an ep i'd like to do you know after that do kind of like a dumb dance record or something you know i i i just now you can have the uh the ability to just I always love the artists I always love the most are ones that always experiment. So that's what uh, I'm attempting to do. Yeah. Yeah. Like across, and I have mad respect that it's across multiple Donna. forms of art that you're experimenting. Well, yeah. our time is, our time is wrapping up a little bit. What's, what's a question I haven't asked that you wish that I would have asked? Um, I don't know. I don't, I don't, um, I don't know. You could come up with a. I. I have no. I can't think of one right now. Honestly, I can't think of one. Oh, you can ask where I'm from. Where are you from? Well, now that you ask, <laughs> I don't know. I am from Denver, Colorado. Oh, wild! I was in. I was in Boulder for about five years doing grad school. You were. I went to see you. Yep. I I got my MFA at Naropa and then did about. Oh, you half. went to Naropa? Yeah, and then I and then I went. I one of the weird creatives that went right from an MFA to a PhD program, and that was at CU. But I didn't finish it, so I joke that I have. I joke that I have two and a half degrees in theater. Oh my god! You went to Naropa. What years were you at Naropa? I was at Naropa. Oh, math. Um, twenty sixteen to twenty eighteen. So I took a couple classes at Naropa back in the early 80s, and that's when Allen Ginsberg was there. And I took a class by Ann Waldman. No. And, yeah. That's amazing. Yeah, that was the, the, beat, the beatniks were there back then. Yeah, no, we, did, we did a production of Chuck Mee's Under Construction, and we added, we added sort of an intro where uh, – yeah, we had Bukowski, Waldman, Kerouac, and Ginsburg, and they were all in different. So they were all in four different parts of the building doing their things at the same time before the show, and then we would usher them into the theater. Amazing. But Amazing. yeah, no, it, I think it was Bukowski, my friend, uh, my classmate Buck did, uh, they did it in an elevator. And so they were doing this whole thing in the elevator and they had it very timed so that they were making sure the elevator door didn't close and we had to uh, get with facilities to make sure an alarm wouldn't go off in the building. But Amazing. Naropa, yes, yes. And now the, pro the program, they did, I think, two classes after ours and then the MFA has gone away. But that was, uh, it was an MFA in contemporary performance and I like that. I like, hanging with multi-hyphenate folks like yourself i don't i didn't want my grad program to be siloed and just acting or just directing because i think i'm excited by the way that theater is going right now because i think we're doing more hybrid stuff we're doing more stuff of the moment i love 
a production like yours where it's, you know, semi-autobiographical, but also bringing in other elements. And um, I think we're really, it's an exciting time in theater where we're really saying, come in to other artists and collaborating. And I think the pandemic has opened up folks who didn't collaborate with each other collaborated with each other because there was just the computer to collaborate with. And um, I'm excited to see what new stuff gets produced in the next few years, sort of in this, I don't know if we can say post pandemic, especially after you and your crew all came down with COVID, but yeah, you know, post 2020, let's say. Well, do you think that you could leave, leave us with like a lyric or a line from the show to take us out on Jill? Let me think of a good lyric here. Yeah. Well, it could be... It ends with the song, Underdog Victorious. He was simply glorious. Someday he'll die notorious. Underdog Victorious. That doesn't tell a lot, but it's it's righteous. That's all I could think about. I could have come up with a better one and a more wittier one, but that's how I'm going to end it. I love it. Well... Jill, thanks for taking this time Thank with us. You. I hope the rest of the run is just spectacular. And I look forward to seeing what you do next. I, I truly mean that. Thank you. Take care. Thank you for listening to the Theatrical Mustang Podcast. I'm your host and producer, Woodzik. This episode of the podcast was edited by C.J. Higgins and distributed by American Theatre Magazine. If you like what you heard, please like, share, and subscribe. Tune in each month for new interviews with artists and cultural trailblazers.